uh, reading Second Samuel from chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, Haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman drop an an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger sent out, set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. 
Moreover, Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Thanks, Darren. Good morning, everybody. Good morning to uh, everybody that's at home and um, a special welcome if you're new or you're visiting with us here this morning. It's always um, wonderful to have new people joining us. Paul Cooper's my name and um, most people call me Coop, so feel free to do that as well. well. Let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, for gathering us here today and to be able to sit under your word. Father, please um, prepare our hearts now as we listen and we ask that you would have us just uh, dwell deeply on this passage and on what your message uh, has to say to each of us individually. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, it's a dramatic turn, isn't it, this chapter and this part of 2 Samuel that we're in. We've seen this rise of David, just a shepherd's boy, became God's anointed, God's chosen king over all of Israel. And this is a man that God had given everything. Everything had been given to him by God. And God was going to fulfill this promise. You remember last week, this promise he made to Abraham so many years earlier, Genesis 12 and Genesis 17, this promise that from Abraham would come a great nation and all the families of the earth would be blessed. And then last week, 2 Samuel 7, we heard how God promised to David that actually it would be through David's line that this would happen. Through David's family, his kingdom would be established forever and that God's people would be given rest. And so these promises and God's faithfulness to those promises are really key passages to understanding the story of the Bible. And so before we really got into our passage today, I wanted to recommend this book actually, God's Big Picture by Vaughan Roberts. Um, This describes the storyline of the Bible and it describes the way that these promises or this promise that God has made is worked out at it. And it's just so important because faith is believing God's promise to us. So over these last few weeks, and particularly last week and this week, if all the talk about promises and Genesis 12, Genesis 17, 2 Samuel 7 and God's salvation plan, if that's all new to you, it'd be really worth uh, grabbing a copy of this. Um, it's a fairly easy read and getting uh, a really good understanding of the way uh, those promises work across the arc of the Bible. And so last week, as I said, a real high point for David, wasn't it? God's eternal kingdom will be established through the line of David. And it makes this chapter today, chapter 11, just so shocking, doesn't it? What a massive fall. What a sudden dramatic fall as David commits all of those horrendous acts that we just heard read to us. And you have to think, what possibly could have made David do those things? He had everything. In fact, he had more than everything. And for me, as I read through chapter 11 and chapter 12, there's just something so familiar about all of that, isn't there? There's something so human about what we've just heard. Because the things that we've just had read to us, we hear about all the time, really. If you remember Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky years ago, Barnaby Joyce, you know, not, not so long ago, both powerful men. Both men who failed morally and they damaged their families terribly through their relationship with women that they weren't married to. Now those cases, presidents and political figures, it might be difficult for us to relate our situation to theirs. But someone said to me once, and I, I think it's true, that if we think that that could never be us, then we are horribly deluded. And I think that's true. I know of situations, and I'm sure you do, of people that if you'd asked me years prior about them, I would have said, there is no way that they would compromise themselves morally like that. There is no way those people would do that. But they did. And so as we look at this passage this morning and we read about David, I want us to be real with ourselves and and ask ourselves, what is it that we might do? You know, just in the right circumstances, if the perfect circumstances presented themselves, 
And if we thought we could make it happen and we could get away with it, what is it that I might be tempted to do? That's the question I want us to hold on to. Now at the beginning of our passage there in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David sent his troops off to war. But notice he's not out there leading them, is he? Living in tents in the fields like the rest of his men. No, he's tucked up in bed at home. And we read that uh, maybe he couldn't sleep, so he got up one evening and he decided to stretch his legs. And he went for a walk around the top of his palace, around the roof. So you remember this picture from last week? There's David's palace. So he's strolling around and uh, surveying his kingdom. And he catches a sight of this woman, this beautiful woman. And she's bathing. And it's evening. And she's purifying herself, which is quite right under Israelite law. And you can see David's palace here, it's quite large, isn't it? And it's quite raised. So he's got a very good view over the city. And so Bathsheba here is being quite discreet about bathing. It's evening after all. It just happens to be that David can see it from where he is. It's not provocative on her part. So let's look at the sequence of events. David's looking around and he sees this beautiful woman. So far, he's not done anything wrong, right? His gaze is just sweeping across the roof line and he stops. And we know David's got a good heart. So you could imagine David's conscience, right? Imagine it. David, we should look away. It's just a bit longer. Like it's, it's just a look. We should look away, David. It won't hurt just to linger just a little bit longer. And so instead of moving on, turning his gaze away, he acts on this desire that he feels. And desire is just so dangerous, isn't it? Because it leads to temptation. Let me give you an example. So I have a glass here of um, nice dry wood chips. Now if I offered this to you to drink, unless you're very odd, I can't imagine many people would want to take this up. I've got a nice glass of dry filtered wood chips would anyone like a glass? <laughs> we'll let that go. <laughs> Most people don't want to drink a glass of wood chips, do they? Because they don't desire it. So I can't tempt you with it. You see what I mean? If you don't desire it, then you can't be tempted. But what if I offer chocolate mud cake? Like that's different, right? I'm tempted. And it's because I desire it. And these will be available at morning tea too, by the way, just in case you thought I was being mean. There's the difference. And there's a passage from James, actually, in the New Testament. James explains it much better than I can. He says, each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. See, so desire comes from inside us and it tempts us. So temptation is not something that's external and it comes to us to resist. It comes from within. If I don't desire it, then there's no temptation. And sexual desire especially is especially strong, much more than uh, chocolate mud cake. And if we stay the course of certain desire, then there will be sin, and that's the problem right there, the sinful condition. 
Now, in this case, in our story, if only David had been able to master his desire, change his desire somehow, he could have avoided temptation, right? And he would not have sinned. But he doesn't. Instead, he, find, he sends someone to find out about this woman. And the messenger comes back and says, this is Bathsheba and she's married. And David knows he shouldn't take the next step. Can imagine again, there's still time to turn back from this, David. This is a married woman. But wait, her husband's away at war. He's not there. And nobody will know. So the temptation is too strong. And he sends messengers to Bathsheba's house. And we don't know what happened. We're not told exactly. But you could imagine that poor Bathsheba had no choice. And so David sleeps with her. And David didn't need to do it. Look at everything that God had given him. He had everything. If only God had remained the object of his desire here instead of lust for Bathsheba. If only God had remained the object of David's desire. And so this happens. And Bathsheba sends word that she's pregnant. And there's no doubt that it's David's because his husband, her husband is off fighting for the king who just took his wife. And the penalty for adultery under Israelite law was death. And so as difficult as it could have been, David could have owned up at this point, couldn't he? He could have come clean. But instead, what David does is try to cover it up. And it's like his conscience has been numbed or something, doesn't it? Like it's seared. What, what uh, 1 Timothy 4 verse 2 refers to as seared. If we keep beating down our conscience, if we keep doing things that we know are wrong, but we keep doing them anyway, that's what happens. We become numbed, we desensitized. And that's what happens to David here. Because he seems morally bankrupt, doesn't he? As he sets about this situation where he tries to get Uriah to come home, sleep with his wife. And if that happens, well, David can pass the baby off as his, no problem. Sin is so deceitful. It's like a little voice saying, if we can just cover it up, it'll be okay. Nobody need ever know. Just between you and me. But the story gets worse, doesn't it? Uriah, who's a Hittite, he's not even a native Israelite. He's more honourable than David. Do you remember there in verse 11? Uriah won't take advantage of the comfort of his home or his wife. His commander and the men and the ark, they're all out in the field living in tents. So David gets him drunk, tries to send him home again. But again, Uriah the Hittite, the soldier, is more honourable than the king, David the Israelite. And so David moves to plan B. Maybe here he's thinking, all right, you know what, all right, Uriah, I have tried everything. You won't take the easy option. I've held it out to you. You've forced my hand. I've got no choice. And so he writes Uriah a note to take back to the commander of the army, Joab. 
So he's making Uriah really carry his own death sentence. That's what he's doing. And even in that, you know, Uriah is a very honourable man. You imagine if Scott Morrison called me to Canberra. He'll never do that, by the way, because he has no idea who I am. But imagine if he did and he gave me a letter to bring back to the Member of Parliament back here of utmost importance. It'd be really tempting, wouldn't it, just to hold it up to the sun and a bit of a sneaky peek about what ScoMo's up to? Well, Uriah doesn't do that. He doesn't sneak a look at the note. He does his duty. He delivers the note. And Joab obeys the orders of his king, puts Uriah where the fighting is fiercest, sends them in far too close because he knows that that'll result in casualties and Uriah dies. And notice that Uriah doesn't die alone. There's more than one person gets killed in this little skirmish. So can you see the sequence of events, what's happened here? One look, desire, temptation, and ultimately, multiple murder. Treacherous things, sin. Just a lingering look, that's all it was. And now here we've arrived at multiple homicide. And it happened because he could do it. He had the position and the power and the authority. So in one sense, this is David. It's God's anointed king. So it's not us. But from the point of view of that sinful temptation that I was talking about, it does relate to us. Like none of us are going to be kings or queens, I imagine, with uh, power and people at our beck and call. But we're human like David. Um, there was an experiment called the Stanford Prison Experiment back in the 70s. I don't know if you've ever heard of that one. A few people. So this is a psychological experiment. There was a guy researching roles that people play in prison life. So he recruited 21 people and they were either prisoners or they were guards. And within hours, the people who played the role of the guards were harassing and brutalising the prisoners, making them do push-ups, clean toilets with their hands, took their food away, deprived them of sleep. They just genuinely dehumanise them and this experiment was supposed to run for two weeks and in the end it got so brutal they cut it off after six days and it just goes to show the sinfulness of normal people like you and me who behaved without any regard for anyone else because the circumstances meant that they could but back to our passage Note the deceitfulness of sin here, and it continues in verse 25. See, David did all those things fairly secretively. You know, a few people would have known, right, because he sent messengers back and forth, but generally it wasn't public knowledge. And he went to extreme lengths, didn't he, to deceive and prevent the truth from getting out there. But the nature of sin is that he even deceived himself, at least to some extent. See, Joab, he expected David to be angry about the way he'd manoeuvred those troops too close to the wall. David's a seasoned commander, right? He knows that that's not a smart move. And yet, when he gets the message, he writes back to Joab as if to say, it's okay, Joab, just let it go. Don't worry, this is just war. It's not you, it's not me. It's just the sword. And in war, people die. These things happen. And that brings us to the end of chapter 11. It all seems like it's done, doesn't it? And Bathsheba 
moves into the palace to become David's wife. He takes her into the palace. But the Lord sends Nathan to David with that amazing parable of the rich man and the poor man, and David is furious. How dare the rich man take advantage of that poor man, says David. And here we see the real deceitfulness of the human heart. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 tells us about that. See, David is so blind now, such as the deceitfulness of sin and the deceitfulness of the human heart, he can't even see the hypocrisy of his own reaction to this story. You are the man, says Nathan. And the web of deceit and manipulation of David's is just shot through with truth. David acknowledges what he did and he confesses. I have sinned against the Lord. And he has, hasn't he? Terribly. He lusted after another man's wife. He took her into his house. He made her pregnant. He had her husband murdered along with a bunch of other people around him. It's all David's doing. He has sinned greatly. And he knows it. And the Lord says here in verse 12 of chapter 12 that David did these things in secret. And that's the thing about sin. It lives in the dark. It lives in secret. You know, if David had been up front along that sequence of events somewhere, if he'd brought his sin out into the open, if he'd told somebody, if he'd been straight up, even though at certain points that would have been really hard, if he'd told Uriah what he'd done, then the sin would have stopped. But he didn't. He kept it hidden. And so it ends in murder. And sin is like that. It thrives in the dark. Sin doesn't like the light, but if you expose it, if you speak about it, if you show it to someone, then it can be dealt with. Sin doesn't like the light. But David didn't do that. He kept it all hidden. Except it's not hidden from the Lord, is it? The Lord saw it. Of course he did. There's nothing hidden from the Lord. And chapter 11, verse 27 says he was displeased. Or that it was evil in his eyes, is what he means. If you think about that, there is no end really, is there, to the deceitfulness of sin, whispering to us that oh, no one will ever know. Because all the time, it's never a secret. The Lord always sees it. It's such a lie. And under Israelite law, as I said, the adultery and murder, the punishment for that, the consequences of that is death. And then there's this extraordinary statement where Nathan comes to David and says, you won't die, that the Lord's taken away your sin. And I don't know about you, but you, I get to this part in the passage and it's really difficult to swallow, isn't it? Like on one hand, I read it and I'm outraged. After everything this man has done, after everything David has done, surely he doesn't deserve this. But then on the other, 
I reflect and think, I am so grateful for the grace and the mercy that God shows David here. This is a man who uh, fell so far, he did awful, terrible things. And then he realised what he did. Realised his sin against the Lord. And so there is David, a sinful man. And at least in that respect, just like me. And so I am so thankful that God is a God of grace who forgives the undeserving David just as through faith he forgives the undeserving me. And of course God, he's given a promise to establish an eternal kingdom, hasn't he? To do that through David and thankfully human sinful behaviour won't prevent God from delivering on that promise. And yet, while David is forgiven, there are awful consequences from those sinful acts. Awful, and they are still very much felt, as sinful acts always are. The Lord went on, didn't he? And he said, the sword will never lead your house. Your concubines will be taken away by another man, just as David took another man's wife. And we'll hear about that a little bit later in 2 Samuel, when one of David's sons makes his own decision to take the the king's concubines and signals to the nation... He's the new king. And David's son, born by Bathsheba, will die. And it, that is a shocking and a terrible thing, that, that this baby should die because of what his father had done. And when we get to this point in the story, I want to make it very clear that this is a consequence of something very particular to do with, Dave, with God's chosen king, David. So we're not to read ourselves into this. We mustn't think that if something terrible happens to us, it's necessarily because directly of something we have done. But in this case, David shouldn't gain from his illegitimate dealings with Bathsheba. And in some respects, Uriah is not further dishonoured. But we read it and of course we ask ourselves why the baby hasn't done anything, nor have David's concubines, nor's Bathsheba. But the reality is that sin creates mess and it creates suffering. And that's exactly what we see here. And we know the character of God, don't we? He gave his own son to die, the most horrendous of deaths. He faced God's anger for all of our sin. He took that punishment on himself so that our debt to God for ignoring him, for our sin could be paid. That is the character of a loving, merciful and just God. That that is a God that we can trust with the mess that our sin has created. And David says here that While the baby won't come back to him, David will go to the baby and he implies that there's a a future beyond this life. And so this story draws to a close. But it isn't before we're reminded again of this amazing grace of the Lord. See, David's sin, it really has been put away. The Lord really has forgiven David because he blesses this union now with Bathsheba and they have another son, a son that the Lord loves. And so we see this next step 
in the unfolding of God's salvation plan. Because this next son is Solomon, the legitimate son of David. And he would go on and build a house for the Lord. And it's in him that we see God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 beginning to be fulfilled. And so we can see God using these sinful human beings to bring about the plan that he always said he'd complete. And so here, David's dramatic fall, he's shown he's not the perfect king of God's people. So if you think about the audience to which this would have been originally written centuries ago, they would have realised the terrible consequences of consciences dulled and muted, the terrible reality of the human condition, desire and temptation and sin. And they would have realised that God's promise is still to be fulfilled. And they would have realised that a king like this can't be God's solution. They need a better leader than that. Something more is needed. And of course, this side of the cross, we're privileged to know what that is, aren't we? Jesus Christ, God's perfect king, sent to die in order to save us. Jesus, who paid the price for our sin of ignoring God and was raised to life again, And the grace and the love of God who credits that to us as we come to him in faith. The fulfilment of God's promise. So if you've answered that question in your own minds that I asked right at the very beginning. Then you know that we need this promise. This is a promise that not only helps us turn from our own sin. But it rescues us from it. And there's parts of our story today about King David that are really hard to hear, aren't there? But join with me now and we'll thank God for the grace he extended for David. The same grace he extends to you and to me. Because ultimately we all give in to temptation and to sin. And through his grace he's rescued us from our own ignorance and from our own sin. Through the one who is God's perfect king, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this account of King David and the clear picture of what it is to be human. Father, we do thank you for your character of love, justice and mercy. Father, we pray you would help us to overcome desire and put away temptation. Father, for the times that we don't, we are so thankful for your grace, shown to the whole world through the sacrifice of your Son, the perfect King, Jesus. Father, we ask you to be with us this week and write your truth on our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.